What does this mean? Martin Luther asked that question 500 years ago to help regular people connect to the Christian journey. In the days of Lent, leading up to Easter, the church is invited to reconnect to the Word. In the next few minutes, the pastors of Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul will talk about some of the Bible lessons that we read in church, connecting a 2,000-year-old book to real life in the 21st century. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. And I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. And we decided to do this podcast because sometimes the Bible makes a lot of sense and sometimes it really doesn't make any sense at all. We struggle with the texts sometimes too, but hope these little conversations can help us enter into the readings a little better. And we want to do something a little different on this podcast. Usually we're looking at the readings that are assigned for Sunday morning. But right now, this week, it's Holy Week, and our podcast is being released right as we enter three of the holiest days on our liturgical calendar. Actually, if you want to think about the whole liturgical year, the very center of it is the celebration of Easter. And there are the 40 days of Lent that help us to get ready for that. But right before we get to it, there are three days set aside that are really an intense kind of preparation for those days when really what we're doing is telling the story that leads up to the resurrection. And so the fancy word for these three days is the triduum, which just means Latin for three days. I love that we do this in the church. We always have these fancy words for things that when you look at what the Latin means, like alb, the robes that we wear just means like White. White. I know. I know. <laughs> and actually, I'm a fan, really, of calling it what it is rather than using the fancy words. I'd rather say the three days. But if we say triduum, then when that comes up in the crossword puzzle, I've got it. There's yeah. not many words with two U's. Exactly. In it. Vacuum right. or triduum. It's going to be one of those two. <laughs> so I like to be so, prepared. That's good. So here's what we're going to do today. I rather- don't have many special areas. This is one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you bring all your gifts. We're going to do this like we've done before, recording it in three sessions, this time just with each one of the services as our reflection. And in the space between the readings, we invite you, take a few deep breaths, center yourself, or take a break and run your errands. We'll be here when you get back. So the very first of the three days is one with a fancy title, Maundy Thursday. Uh, Pastor Javen, why don't you start us off with this? Maundy Thursday sort of marks the end of the Lenten period, the 40 days of repentance and fasting, um, and sort of marks a transition into, uh, like you said, Pastor Bradley, the holiest days of the year marking Christ's death and resurrection on Easter. And so I sort of see Monday Thursday almost as like a hinge between the 
30 some days that have come before that are all about repentance and fasting and all the things that we've been talking about and really now turning toward these holy three days. And there are sort of four moves, four big liturgical moves in the Monday Thursday service. And I just wanted to talk briefly about each of them. The first is time of confession and forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness is something we do regularly in the church, but on Monday, Thursday, it takes maybe a slightly different tone, and we take a little more time with it. Actually, as I was researching this, I found out that hundreds of years ago, it used to be uh, the case that serious sinners at the beginning of Lent were sort of excommunicated, or they were uh, forbidden from coming to the table. I've always felt like we should go back to something like that. <laughs> That's a really... <laughs> Some of the pastors won't be in church for a few weeks Yeah, there. right, yeah. right. Um, but they were prohibited from coming to the table for a communion during Lent um, as they spent the season sort of in penitence. And then Monday, Thursday was the day when they were welcomed back to the table. Um, and it was sort of the uh, time at the end of the season to have those sins forgiven and to be readmitted. Um, so Monday, Thursday, was. this is why I say it was sort of, this is sort of a hinge day in that it marks the end of this period of kind of repentance and now turning toward um, what's to come. I always think of this too as kind of a, a bookend to Ash Wednesday where everybody comes forward and people are marked with the sign of the cross and ashes, and you remember your mortality. Um, and then on Monday, Thursday, that you can do the right in a number of ways, but one is to have everybody come up again, this time receive the laying on of hands and the announcement of forgiveness. Confession and forgiveness is a time when we can be kind of regrounded in our baptismal identity and soak up the grace of God. Then, of course, the second big move in Monday Thursday is foot washing. Everybody's favorite. Everyone's favorite thing. It um, is sort of mine, though. I love it. I just love it. Yeah. Say more about why. Uh, it's such a countercultural thing to do. It's you know the, just about the weirdest thing we do. We, we have this meal every week, and that's very countercultural, but we all know how to eat. Washing somebody's feet, nobody except maybe in a nursing home or something or the the uh, person at your manicure spot, your pedicure spot, knows how to do. But here we do it in church. We we invite people to be so vulnerable, and we we touch each other's calluses. We touch each other's worn out ugliness because usually most of us are kind of embarrassed about our feet, and just think in terms of. Every part of you is embraced by God, and the the worn out parts God loves deeply. Do you remember right after uh, Pope Francis was elected, mm -hmm. and I think it was his first cycle through the Holy Days, and he went to wash feet in a prison, and he washed Muslims' feet, and he kissed them. Oh, he mm -hmm. kissed each foot as he washed them. And I feel like that is such a beautiful image for what we're really about in the end. And here's the Pope, the 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 top of the food chain in the Roman Catholic Church, kneeling, kissing a Muslim's 
foot. I mean, that's beautiful. And of course, the reason we do this is because we read in the Gospel of John about on the night in which he was betrayed, um, Jesus had a meal with his friends, and before the meal, he washed his disciples' feet. And he says, after he does that, he says, um, I have done this to set an example for you. You too should go and um, do this. We talked earlier about the Latin, the Latin thing in the church. So, command. So Jesus says, "I've given you a new commandment." When he washes the people's feet, he says, I've, "I'm giving you a new commandment: love one another as I have loved you." And that word commandment in Latin is mandatum, which sounds like mandate, right? And we think that's where Monday and Monday Thursday comes from. So another example of we just take a Latin thing and make it sound fancy. Right, and it's not Monday, Thursday. Right. People are often confused about this. It's like, why is there two days of the week on one day? Right. No, it's Monday. The third big move on Monday, Thursday is we have communion. Of course, nowadays we still have communion every Sunday in worship, but for a long time— Lent was truly a season of fasting and repentance, and Monday Thursday was the day when we broke the fast and came back to the table and received communion. Um, and uh, we also do this because, like we just said a bit ago, Scripture tells us that in the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus had a meal with his friends. And so we are now having a meal together on this night Thursday night, um, which is the night in which Jesus uh, was betrayed. And then the fourth move on Monday, Thursday is the stripping of the altar, where we prepare the sanctuary for Good Friday and the sort of starkness of rejection um, that Jesus experiences. Um, I think this sort of originated just as, you know, like this, the altar needed to get stripped and the things needed to get needed to come down before Good Friday, and and I think we just made it sort of a liturgical act. <laughs> it's sort of just a practical thing that we turned into a liturgical act. But I also think it's it can be a really sweet devotional practice to sit and watch that happening and for us to sit and just reflect on what we're observing um, as that's happening in the service. Yeah, it's like the whole thing ends with he is given over into the the hands of the soldiers and so um, – and is being led away. So I always think of the stripping of the altar as kind of awkward too. It doesn't quite feel right. It seems weird. But that that too is consistent with where we are in the story. It's not It's not a place in the story that you feel great affection and love for. That's maybe a good place to end our discussion of Monday Thursday. We'll take a quick break and come back to talk about Good Friday.
Welcome back. Today on our podcast, we're talking about the three holy days and each of the liturgies that occur leading up to Easter. And uh, actually, this is one service that lasts over three days. You begin it. There's no benediction at the end of the Thursday service or the Friday service. The benediction doesn't come until the end of the Easter vigil. So you can kind of think of this as a liturgy that goes on for three days. We just take a break between services to go home, take care of what we need to do, and then come back and pick up in the story where we left off. So where we are in the story right now is it's Good Friday, and Jesus has been led off to the authorities. Pastor Lois, you want to talk a little bit about Good Friday? Yes. One of the things we say when we work with children, helping them understand communion, we talk about how there's one story in the church that we tell every single week, every time we gather, and it's that one that Pastor Javen was talking about on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And, you know, one of the questions I love to ask children is, why do you think we have to tell that story so often? I think the the liturgy of the three days, the triduum, is telling that story again. Every year we tell it almost exactly the same way in this ancient form that the church uses, but there's something so grounding about it, so important, so foundational to who we are as Christian people that it feels like a good story. I, you know, this phrase, Good Friday, is confusing for people. Why would you call that day good? It really came from the word God's Friday. This is, this is the day God gives us, you know, but um, that we we understand this to be the deepest, most meaningful part of our story. And we really focus on the cross on Good Friday. So we left the service last night, Thursday night, stripping the altar bare. Everything is plain. We don't have any paraments or any of those cloths or um, special colors or anything. If anything, it's black or just plain. Uh, When you come to church on Good Friday, it's silent often and Um, There's no Eucharist. This is one of the only times during the year that we gather without having communion because the whole service is really focused on the cross and the adoration of the cross, which is an odd, odd phrase for us. So anyway, as Pastor Bradley was saying, a continuation of that three days, no opening hymn often. In some traditions, you'll even see that the clergy or the worship leaders come in and lie down, face down on the ground in front of the altar, this incredible sign of humility and despair almost, but it's also uh, like a bow with our whole body to lie down in front of the cross and and reverence the cross in that sense. The whole service is this this adoration. The reading for Good Friday is always the passion of Jesus through the Gospel of John, We'll have just read the whole Passion story on Sunday before. For Palm Sunday, we read the whole Passion, usually in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and this year it was Luke. But then on Good Friday, we read the story all over again, but this time through John's Gospel. And I invite you as you listen to to look for the differences. How does John frame things in ways that's different than what we heard on Sunday? And when you stop to look at it, you really see how John adores the cross, this adoration of the cross. The cross in John's gospel is really Jesus' triumph. And you'll hear some of that in the hymns and especially language from the ancient, you know, very early church. The cross is the sign of 
of triumph, which looks like a curse to us. It's an execution. Jesus is being executed by the Romans. And what, what, how could we see that as a triumph? But if you listen to John's gospel, you'll see Jesus' understanding of himself pouring himself out for the world. Remember, John's gospel is where Jesus regularly calls himself, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. All of these I ams, which remind us of when God calls tells Moses, my name is I am. I am who I am. Jesus uses the same kind of triumphant language of saying, I am all that you need. And and when Jesus pours himself out on the cross, there's a sense of everything has been given for us. In in my childhood or early memories of Good Friday, it was very maudlin, very um, bleak. And we were supposed to think about our guilt, how we did this. We we were bad people. And so Jesus had to die for us. But I think the, the story in John's gospel is very different than that. The world is broken. Certainly there is despair for which Jesus is dying, but it's not so much because we are bad people that Jesus is dying to to be our punishment or something, but instead the sense of Jesus gives his life over to the brokenness of the world and invites us also. And that's, for me, one of the most beautiful parts of the service. After we read John's gospel, we do this procession with the cross and uh, leave the cross in the front and people are invited to uh, bring their pain, their sorrow, their life to the cross. And uh, we have a procession. People move through the sanctuary, sometimes leaving a little ribbon or a note. It's different each year of a, a pain that they want to lay at the foot of the cross, sometimes their own sorrow, their own brokenness, or the brokenness of the world. And for me, that's the most moving part of the service as we watch members of Gloria Day, whom we know are struggling with any kind of pain, any kind of loss, and recognize all of us together share share this brokenness. Yeah, it's like the cross is the symbol of where God's love meets the suffering, pain, and death of the world. And that's the glory. That's the goodness part of it, is that God meets us there. The other big piece of the Good Friday liturgy is uh, called the bidding prayers, and it's very much the intercessory prayers that we use um, on Sunday. But this has an ancient form that's used throughout many, many churches throughout the world that uses this bidding prayer form. One person says, "Let us pray for um, something," and then another person, another uh, pastor, then offers this prayer, and there's silence, and it goes on, and we pray for. The church, the world, uh, all people, whether those are people who um, are followers of Jesus or not, and it's taken different forms. The form we use now really tries to say we pray that the cross brings all people together. Um, When you were talking about the adoration of the cross, I was remembering somewhere in my brain learning that this practice actually developed in the 4th century, Mm. I think, when people believed they had a piece of the true cross, like it had been dug up in uh, Jerusalem and broken apart and sent all over. So churches had this piece of the cross. And so on Good Friday, it was brought out and people would come forward and – and touch it, you know, that touch the relic of the 
the cross, and it was this sacred moment of connecting to the story of bringing your life to the to the story. And um, I think what we do now still has the echo of that, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that we're br- we're we are bringing ourselves just as God has brought this story of love to us. We're bringing our story of whatever it is to God, and they meet here. And I I always kind of like that the cross looks like an intersection. You know, it's two lines coming together. And I feel like that's what we're doing on Good Friday. Your mention of the intersection, that of of the cross being like an intersection, reminds me again of the bidding prayers, connecting the power of God's love to the pain of the world. Yeah, in the if you follow the the rubrics, which are the quote unquote rules for how you do this, you're supposed to announce the petition. Then you sit down, like you say, oh, let us yes, pray let's for pray. creation. Everybody sits, sits down. There's silence while everybody on their own prays for the creation in the way they need to. Then when that time's over, everybody stands up. The One of the ministers leads a little concluding collect, kind of collecting everybody's thoughts. And then the other minister says, let us pray for the sick. Everybody sits down and you do that. And it goes through this pattern up and down um, for a long time. Mm-hmm. These are long prayers. You know, Lutherans especially talk a lot about we, – we talk about the theology of the cross. Um, and what that really means to me anyway is that if we want to know where God is most powerfully present, we look to where people are suffering because that is where God is most powerfully active and um, coming alongside. And when we look to the cross on Good Friday, that's what we're trying to communicate is that this isn't a place of God forsakenness. This is a place where God comes powerfully in love to say God is in solidarity with people who suffer. And actually this year we're trying a new thing on Good Friday. Um, We're going to do a service at noon where we're going to go into the community to a place where – out in the world to a place where great suffering has taken place. And we are going to offer our prayers there Um, because that's what Good Friday is to us, um, is it's saying – where people are suffering, that is where God is in solidarity with humankind. That sounds like a wonderful place for us to end today's discussion on Good Friday, and we'll come back in a moment to talk about the Easter Vigil. Welcome back. So we are two-thirds of the way through the three days. We've finished Good Friday, which again ends in silence and everyone goes home. I think there's even a note in the bulletin on Good Friday that we're not supposed to even talk to each other when we leave. Um, but I've been in the hallways. Right. I, it's I've, tricky. Uh, I know. I've heard the conversation. I might have broken that rule before. Um, but the point is it's a solemn, it's a solemn day. So then we come back on Saturday for really what is 
the high point of the liturgical year. The Easter Vigil is probably the most important liturgy that we do. Even Easter morning, the bigness of Easter morning is a an outgrowth of what we've just done on, on Saturday night, a continuation of what we've done. And it's everybody's favorite. It's my favorite. Easter Vigil is so fun. And, I, yeah, for sure the most fun. Yeah. I always wish more people would come for the vigil, but I think a lot of us grew up without a vigil tradition. It was... The only way the early church celebrated Easter, they would uh, prepare people for baptism through Lent, and then at the the night before Easter, everyone would gather together and they would read the stories of uh, salvation, the great biblical stories, um, and usually this was all this was an all night, literally an all night vigil. Um, which culminated then in the morning as the sun began to rise, the catechumens, those who were going to be baptized, would first – and this is – I love this. They would face towards the west where it was dark and they would renounce Satan and all the powers of evil, everything that goes bump in the night, they would say no to and then turn around towards the east where the – the sun was rising and light is beginning to dawn and they would confess the risen Christ uh, and then be baptized because it really was understood as you were leaving one life behind and you were taking on a whole new life. You were often even given a new name at that vigil. You were given new clothes, the alb that we mentioned before, this white garment was given to you and you were uh, given a candle because you were going to be light for the world and you were anointed with oil because you were a priestly person. All these things, which we still do in baptisms, um, were just beautifully, luxuriously, abundantly, dramatically done at the Easter Vigil. And then all of the newly baptized would come into the church and celebrate communion for the very first time. In fact, for many of them, they'd never experienced this before because they would be asked to leave before the meal. They would stay through the word and then go. And so this too for them was this new experience of eating and drinking the risen Christ, the the bread and the wine. And it's it's so moving. It uses so many different uh, of our senses. I love that. Part of um, the whole triduum, from washing feet and being forgiven with with water, and then also the adoration of the cross, the movement, but especially at the Easter Vigil, you get to use all your senses, and it's profoundly moving. Right. I think that's the power of these three days. It's not that we come and we sit and listen to a story that takes three days for us to tell. We act out the story. We put our bodies into this story so we experience it. And I think that's the more crucial part is that we experience the story. Well, let me break down the Easter Vigil. There's really four major parts to it. One is the kindling of the new fire. We go outside – if there's no snow in Minnesota, um, and in front of the church, 
have a little bonfire. Um, a big bonfire. A little a big bonfire. <laughs> There's no such thing as a little bonfire. A yeah. big, a, yeah, a big bonfire for the front porch of the of the church. And we light the Paschal candle, which is the big Easter candle that stands in the church and that we light at uh, times of baptism and at Easter. And it's the symbol of the risen Christ. So we light that candle and then carry it into the church in the dark and everybody has candles and we all light our candles from this big paschal candle and then uh we sing the exalted exalt which means praise praise right it's this expression of praise for the resurrection and we sing it in the dark by candlelight i i think it's a really special my f- moment my favorite part is the line in that where we praise god for the bees that made the wax that made this candle um, that's so good i love it's so good these everything every all parts of creation are brought together to do this incredible miracle of bringing jesus to life so even the bees get to be thanked mm-hmm. yeah it's it's a it's a holy moment um, when that's over, the next section is uh, the telling of stories. There are 12 lessons appointed at the Easter vigil. Uh, we don't do all 12 of them at Mercifully, we do <laughs> We do five or six. We could do all 12 and just spend a little more time. We I've could. been to we vigils could. where they've done all 12. Um, people – they relax get into, into it. it. You mm-hmm. get into it. But we do five or six and that we try to do those in some fun ways. We'll a couple of them will maybe do a little skit or have slides or some kind of music, some way to tell the story just a little bit differently, a little more uh, creatively than we might on a on a Sunday morning. What I love about this part of the service is that we're telling all these stories. So those 12 lessons of which we don't do all of them, but those stories are all stories about ways that God has saved God's people throughout history. And what I love about it is that it connects our most important story as Christians about Jesus's death and resurrection to the ancient stories of the of Jewish history um, and in the Hebrew scriptures. And so we see that what we celebrate as Christians is really just a continuation of the same work of God that we've been reading about throughout the Hebrew scriptures. The big stories of deliverance and creation and newness, new life. So right. the creation story, Noah and the flood, Abraham and Isaac and Exodus from slavery into freedom. And uh, Which is just to say that what God is doing in and through Jesus isn't something radically new necessarily. This is the same God who's been saving God's people again and again and again. And we sit in this dark church and around this candle and hear all those stories again. I I just love that part of the Easter Vigil. Yeah, and the church is still dark at this point. And then when we're finished telling the stories, the last one is the three young men in the fiery furnace, which is always a great story to tell or act out. Um, Then we move to the baptismal font. Uh, If we're lucky, there's a baptism uh, that night. Uh, If not, we all affirm our baptism. And as Pastor Javen was mentioning, the quintessential story 
in the vigil really is the is the children of Israel crossing the uh, on dry land in the Red Sea. The water has uh, been pulled back, and they safely cross. And baptism is our journey across from death into life. And when that's finished, we get bowls of water and these little broom things, and we begin to throw water on the assembly and um, and say, Christ is risen. It's the first time actually we say, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. At that point, right after the baptism, it's like that marks the move from the end of the Holy Days into the celebration of Easter. And so at Gloria Day, we splash people with water and say, Christ is risen, death has no more dominion over you. And we're all saying it at the same time, and the organ starts playing these low notes. Kind of and, vamping. Yeah, it gets, it gets bigger and bigger, and the, the music gets louder and louder, and the lights begin to, to go up. Bells are ringing. Bells and are ringing. The lights are on, and then— um, You can smell the lilies. And, yeah, and yeah. then somebody will sing, this is the feast, and we sing, this is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia. And another big procession down— the aisle, and we read the Easter story, and uh, at uh, Gloria Day, we read this sermon by John Chrysostom, who was ancient saint, fourth century, uh, fourth century, century yeah. who wrote this Easter sermon that still sounds like it's modern. I mean, it's still so powerful. So we read that, but there's a part of it. Uh, one old tradition is that whenever you heard. Uh, about the devil, devil, you would stamp your, yeah, you'd stamp your feet, and so we do that. We tell everybody every time you hear devil or death, death. you hear death, stamp your feet. So people get into that and and stamp their feet while we read, um, and then we celebrate really the first uh, Eucharist of Easter. Gather around the table and. Lots of singing, lots of glory at this point, and then, and only then, after all of that, is there a benediction. So those are our those are the three services. We hope that uh, as you're thinking about how you keep these holy days and how you celebrate the life that Christ offers to you in the resurrection, that you'll set aside time to come and to walk through these days with us. We would love to have you join us. And we actually would love to hear what you think about all of this. You can always uh, drop us a note at pastors at org. If you ever want to know more about the congregation, you can look us up on the web at org. We want to thank Paul Friesen Carper for the music in our podcast and our Holy Week services, Monday, Thursday, There is a traditional service at noon, a children's service at 5, and then a dinner, dinner church at 7 o'clock. On Good Friday, we have two services at noon, our prayers of solidarity, and then at 7 o'clock, the traditional adoration of the cross. Again, with the children's service at 5 o'clock. At 5 o'clock, thank you. And then on Saturday, again, the children's vigil at 5, and then the full Easter vigil at 7 o'clock. Remember, on Easter morning this year, we'll be worshiping at 8 a.m., 
9.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. And we'd love to have you at one of those services, too. So we hope that you'll join us. Thank you so much for listening today. And as you keep these days, know that God's love is all around you. God is with you, and God will provide what you need to be raised into new life. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com. 